I had gone through many experiences uh, with my parents being exploited, wages stolen, uh, and then I couldn't even go to college because of my undocumented status. And I was so ready to give up. But it was my mother who one day, as I was crying and you know thinking I could not go to school anymore and all of your sacrifices will mean nothing now, right? Like that's how I felt. Um, as a junior in high school, she told me, look, we've sacrificed so much. We left everything behind to come to this country. And this is not the point where you're going to give up. Hello, welcome to The Resistors, a podcast where we talk to all the people trying to save us from Donald Trump. I'm your host, Chris Vaith. On today's show, we talk with Christina Jimenez. Christina is the co-founder and executive director of United We Dream, the nation's largest immigrant youth-led organization. She and United We Dream are at the forefront of so many contemporary fights over immigration policy, including the DREAM Act, DACA, TPS, and much more. Christina, welcome to The Resisters, and thanks for sitting down to chat during such a busy time. Great to be here. So much of your work seems to be an extension of your own background. And I'm curious, where did you grow up? I was born in Ecuador. And at the age of 13, um, my parents uh, had to make the decision to come to the U.S. to seek a better life, just like many immigrant families and immigrants uh, have done you know, across uh, the globe and over centuries. Um, in Ecuador at that time, uh, there was a very difficult economic uh, and political situation. As a 13-year-old, I just remembered um, that the banks had ceased the savings of uh, people. They had closed down. Many companies had closed down, leading to millions of people being unemployed and fleeing poverty in Ecuador. And uh, my parents and my family, uh, you know, were one of those families that fled uh, poverty. Um, and I remember my dad acknowledging that we, um, you know, did not have money for food. Um, and my school had been sending me notices that if we didn't pay for tuition, they will not let me in anymore. And for my parents, uh, it was really important that they were able to provide for their family, for their kids. Uh, my dad grew up homeless. And so for him to be able to, you know, provide shelter and to have food at the table for uh, his kids uh, was his dream to ensure that, you know, his kids didn't have the life that he did. Um, and so that's why they courageously made the decision in 1998 to leave everything behind. And we settled in New York City in Queens. And what was it like to arrive to Queens, New York as a 13-year-old? Um, well, we, our family, some of our family lived in, in Elmhurst, and then eventually all of us moved to Jackson Heights, which is a very immigrant and diverse community in Queens. Um, but, you know, knowing that you and your family are undocumented, um, you always live with the fear in the back of your head that, a police officer is going to ask you for your papers that your mom or your dad will be detained as they go to work or maybe during work, right? At the time, there will be news about workplace rates. Um, and so we live with that fear all the time. And sometimes people, um, you know, don't realize that even simple things like what 
address we will provide to the school for their records. It was such a, a, you know, complicated and fearful situation to be dealing with because we were undocumented. We were afraid of giving our information to government agencies, including institutions like public schools. Um, and, you know, we had to go around asking friends of the family who were green card holders to let us use their home address um, for the school. Um, we ended up, uh, using my aunt's, uh, home address, uh, cause she has, uh, she had already had a green card at that point. Um, and so, you know, small things like that. Um, but then even bigger things like, um, not only being fearful because of your immigration status, but also because of the color of your skin. And when you grow up in a place like New York city, you learn very quickly that, uh, very easily, my dad will get stopped by the police when he was driving. Uh, my brother was stopped and frisked at the age of 11 by um, wow. by New York City cops as he was walking home from school. Um, and so all of these, you know, were part of my experiences as well as being in a very vibrant immigrant community with like, you know, tons of different foods and cultures and traditions and being exposed to such a beautiful and resilient immigrant community. Um, for me, I think that's, you know, what shaped a lot of both my organizing eventually, uh, but also my commitment to, to the immigrant community. A lot of impacted people describe themselves as undocumented, unashamed, unafraid, and I wonder if you could describe your own experience of living in the shadows and, and then stepping out. It is terrifying to um, be undocumented. And, uh, you know, it, it is really a secret. You don't talk about it because obviously you're fearful that people could share that information. So I grew up very fearful. And I also uh, grew up with a lot of shame about it. Um, and you know, your parents always tell you, like, don't share it because it could get you or family in trouble. And when I started organizing, I remember, uh, there was an event that was being hosted by the New York City Bar Association. Uh, and this was probably 2004. And someone asked me to share my story. And I, was really nervous about it because I was really fearful that I will be putting myself or my parents at risk of deportation or, you know, becoming visible uh, to ICE agents, to Immigration Customs Enforcement. And, you know, I said to, to the planners of the event, the only way I will share my story is if I can use a different name or fake name and that I will say that I was from another country, right? Like that was my way to protect, right? My, um, my family to protect myself. And it took a lot for me to get there. It took a lot of courage to share your story openly at a time where this slogan of being undocumented and unafraid was not out there was not part of our movement. There was no movement at that time, really, of young people that were out there. I think that what we were experiencing were the beginnings of it. And so uh, I remember, you know, sharing that my name was Sandra and that I was from Costa Rica. Uh, and I always joke around, like, I don't know why Costa Rica came to mind. Um, but, you know, 
it's a nice country. And I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> I, will, I will just share that I am from, from there. And so, you know, I share this with people because I want, I, I want people to know that there was a time, uh, and I think it is still today, that there are many people who are afraid of sharing their story, of sharing their experiences as undocumented people. But it is only through the power of building relationships with people, of building a community, of getting to know other undocumented young people, and really being part of a social movement that gave me the strength and the courage to share my story and then to continue to to do that uh, in more and more public ways over time to organize for our community. And, and that was quite a few years ago. I wonder, did the fear go away or is it something that you just live with differently now in community with other people who have shared their stories? You know, thankfully, um, I am currently not undocumented and um, I I was able to get a green card um, a few years ago. But during most of my life here, um, you know, I was undocumented and through my journey, what I will say is that as I, as I share my story with other people and build relationships with other young people and I will get to hear their stories, that gave me courage of, um, because of their own families and the sacrifices that their families have made. And also because it gave me a sense that I wasn't alone, right? Like for me, sharing your story in, in your community and as a tool for organizing, um, it's not only a strategy, it's a healing and transformational experience because you live with that shame and, and that profound sense of isolation that when you share it for the first time with people um, and people are there with you to support you and giving you love and giving you support, you move from a place of isolation to a place of community and not feeling alone anymore and also from a place of fear to feeling empowered. And to me, um, I have, you know, that was my own experience and I have seen that experience now being replicated thousands and thousands of times across the country over the period of time that we have been doing work as I have seen young people like me being really afraid and then sharing their story for the first time and that being a very transformational experience for them that was the first step in building community. Um, and, you know, after that, to me, I was like, people have my back yeah. and I will have theirs. And that to me was the fuel and what gave me the strength to continue to do the work. There's such a diversity of immigrant communities within the United States. So I, I don't know that it would be easy to generalize, but I wonder, is there resistance from within communities, perhaps across generations, to the boldness and the fearlessness that mostly younger people are demonstrating? You know, I think that um, there is a beauty to the intergenerational connections in our communities and how both have served to build a really strong movement. Um, you know, I think of my own family. Uh, my, my parents are undocumented. My brother is a DACA recipient. Um, and I'm the only person in the family that has uh, a green card. 
And when I was 19 years old and I started to um, organize, it really came from a place of survival. Um, I had gone through many experiences uh, with my parents being exploited, wages stolen, uh, and then I couldn't even go to college because of my undocumented status. And I was so ready to give up. But it was my mother who one day, as I was crying and, you know, thinking I could not go to school anymore and all of your sacrifices will mean nothing now, right? Like, that's how I felt um, as a junior in high school. She told me, look, we've sacrificed so much. We left everything behind to come to this country. And this is not the point where you're going to give up. So we're going to figure something out. And I'm going to go to school with you or I'm going to speak to your teachers, but you're going to go to college, period. And if you had not been for the resilience and the courage of my mother, I would have probably at that point as a junior in high school given up. Um, and uh, it was also my work, uh, you know, by sharing my story publicly and they will see me at rallies and they will see me marching that over time, my parents joined the movement. And they have now with me done door knocking, membership meetings. They've come to many of the national gatherings that United We Dream has put together over the years, uh, where we bring thousands of immigrant youth together. Um, they've made calls to members of Congress with me. They have now even shared their stories openly with the media too. Um, and so I share that as an example for how the interconnectness um, and the strength of intergenerational connections um, and, and the resilience of the community uh, gets to support the courage and the risk that many young people, right, continue to take and have taken uh, over the last years. Your work and the work of your organization, United We Dream, among other organizations, uh, you've brought a visibility to a large community of people that is invisible to many people, whether or not they oppose immigrant rights, um, who have never seen uh, a field of migrant farm workers, um, who have never known a high school valedictorian who is unable to afford college because their status does not enable in-state tuition or financial aid. There is also a, a strategic reason to, in organizing to bring to light the stories of people who live um, with this vulnerability in the workplace and schools and so forth? You know, for us, um, as I was sharing earlier, storytelling and story sharing, it's, uh, it's a tradition that we have in many of our communities and cultures, right? And for our own movement, I can say that it was healing for me and it has been healing and transformational for many other people. And that is a huge part of what has helped us build and grow the immigrant youth movement beyond the, the, the transformational and healing role that storytelling plays from a strategy standpoint. Uh, I do believe that we have made um, long strides in humanizing this conversation. Um, in a way that really breaks down for people who are undocumented immigrants, 
what are their experiences? Why are they undocumented, right? Like I can't uh, even tell you how many people have asked me, like, what don't you go to USCIS and apply for citizenship, right? Like people don't know um, how uh, racist and, um, and, and how out of control <laughs> the immigration system really is. And it has been through storytelling that we have been able to bring people in, uh, and, and, and really connect with other human beings that are going through, um, discrimination, that are going through a very difficult time. And that, like, you know, many, like many families or perhaps even many parents have, you know, families have had to make choices, focus on their well-being of their family or their well-being of their children. Um, and, and storytelling also gives us a tool to, you know, push back against a frame that has really criminalized people, right? The immigration debate over time has been, you know, the images that people think about is people jumping the wall. Um, uh, it's, quote unquote criminals, however that, you know, is defined for people. Um, and, um, what unfortunately this whole narrative has done is that the very act of my father and mother who, uh, fled poverty to give us a better life, like their act of love and commitment to their family, it's a crime under the debate of how, of how the immigration debate has been defined. And so for us, the storytelling really helps us also to challenge a narrative that criminalizes people. Because once you accept the criminalization of people, um, then anything else is justified, right? Like you, you, what we've seen recently, for example, with this new administration, um, the Trump administration, um, made all undocumented immigrants a threat to national security uh, through his executive order right the first week that he got into the White House. And even before that, under Obama, it was the criminalization frame that led him to lead the most historic number, you know, um, of deportations um, in this country. And, um, and so for me, really, uh, well, from a strategy standpoint, stories are helping us to challenge, uh, people and to challenge this framework of, uh, of criminal and a framework that criminalizes immigrant communities, um, to one that really humanizes, uh, our struggles as immigrant communities who for the most part are co as our communities of color. Um, and, uh, and who also you know, helps us change hearts and minds. I mean, I remember when in my first interviews um, back in the early 2000s, many reporters will call me illegal. Many of the headlines will say the illegal student or the illegal immigrant. And um, it is because of our organizing and storytelling that we have been able to move to a place where I think people have a better understanding now um, of why we don't use the word illegal because no human being is illegal and, and saying that, you know, again, like supports 
um, the criminalization of people and the dehumanizing of people. Um, and it has also changed, I think, the way that we've been able to influence policy. And certainly, you know, the work is not over, but I do think that from a strategy standpoint, narrative and storytelling are very important because people do not listen to facts. The stories of um, people like Guadalupe Garcia de Rios, Jeanette Vizguera, who's been on this podcast, Sarah Beltran, Danny Vargas, baby Fatima Rashad. These stories are not the picture that Donald Trump and the Trump administration have painted of what you described as threats to national security. These are ordinary people living their lives who have been put in very precarious situations by his administration. You've talked about how the language has changed in part through the storytelling of the movement. Your organization, United We Dream, says a lot, I think, in the title, and the term dreamers. Uh, can you tell the story of how that was coined? Did it come out of the DREAM Act, or was it? did it predate it? So, you know, I think um, when you're part of a movement, movements are so vibrant, and there's no one single individual and or organization that could be, I think, attributed for, uh, you know, for things, because things happen in such a collective and also decentralized way, which is great, because that's how movements are really effective. My recollection of how the term dreamer came about, um, it was um, between uh, 2005, 2008, um, where, you know, as I was sharing with you before, uh, the way in which people were referred to immigrants, whether it was an immigrant young person or not, or a child or whatever, it was illegals. And um, at the time, all of us felt just that that was wrong. Like we couldn't let reporters continue to call us illegals. We couldn't let the narrative and the political conversation continue to be using that word. So then what do you use? And at the time, you know, DREAM Act was introduced in 2001, which is a federal bill um, that... Uh, proposes to provide a path to citizenship for undocumented young people. And many of us advocated for that bill for many years. And, you know, uh, ironically, uh, in 2017, we continued to um, <laughs> advocate uh, for this bill. Um, but at some point, I remember some of us saying, we are dreamers because we're not illegals. And so I know for me and for many of the people that I work with, um, the word dreamer came as uh, an act of resistance and as an act of resisting the, the illegality framework, the criminalization framework um, that people had on us as human beings. Um, over time, as the term dreamer, you know, picks up and becomes really part of the mainstream narrative, I think something that, that happened from my perspective is that the term was uh, co-opted by the media and by politicians to use it to 
um, create, uh, you know, sort of the highest standard of the exceptional, exceptional, exceptional person, young person that deserve protection, um, whose parents have made a mistake or broken the law, quote unquote, to come to the, to the United States. And, um, I think that the, the now we are in this, you know, it, 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 in this big challenge that though for many of us, the word dreamer became our, our, our tool to reclaim our humanity and to resist, um, the framework of criminalization and, and calling us illegals, uh, that, um, uh, the term dreamer now also plays into a narrative of creating, you know, the good versus the quote unquote bad immigrant. And so for United We Dream, for example, we, uh, as strategists and, and as organizers, uh, this nuance, um, it's very clear to us, um, you know, which is why we've been doing a lot of work to, challenge this notion that the only extremely exceptional people should be protected. Um, but really, we are inviting Americans to see us as human beings, to see our full selves, to see our stories, and and to really challenge the notion that the dreamers are all the valedictorians, or the dreamers are like the, the only deserving, right? Or that the dreamers have no fault for what they did, but that their parents should be blamed. And all of that is, you know, things that are just unacceptable to continue to um, uh, to be part of the mainstream narrative. So, you know, which is why we have been, um, through storytelling, actually, uh, really uh, lifting up the stories of young people who, you know, maybe DACA recipients who are actually parents, uh, many of them who actually have had, um, you know, connection, uh, interactions with law enforcement in the past. I mean, we're young people, you make mistakes, it happens. Um, and also young people that are not valedictorians, that are actually not in college or not in high school, because as any other community, the immigrant community is diverse. And this idea of meritocracy, <laughs> uh, it's something that I think that not only in the immigrant community we need to challenge, but I think is an American narrative that ought to be challenged. That's uh, a really important uh, distinction from the way I asked the question too, and uh, I appreciate it. Uh, so let's talk about this moment in history. Um, Trump is president. Uh, at least 11 million people living in the shadows, at least 800,000 young people who have uh, DACA protection but are at risk. These are uniquely dangerous times, uh, but things, as you acknowledged earlier, were not necessarily great during the Obama years. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with the history of immigration policy, in a nutshell, how did we get here? Mm. That's such a good question. So... This country has a history of uh, designing policies to uh, bring certain kinds of people into the country, blocking others, to using people for their cheap labor, and then getting rid of them, um, and, um, and to continue to create the other through our policies, right? So we see things uh, like the Bracero program at some 
at, at some point in history where uh, it was a program that allow uh, farm workers to come into the country um, and they were exploited at a mass scale and then they wake it and then they were kicked out. They were deported. Um, you have our, you know, and we've learned this in history. You also have things like the Japanese internment camps, um, where uh, Japanese Americans were put in camps. Um, and throughout time, what we have seen in immigration policy is that it has been set by quotas, um, where poor people of color cannot come into this country. That's, you know, and and so we have seen, a lot of people think about or have asked me, you know, why don't people get on the line and come to this country in the right way? Like my ancestors did that. My ancestors got to Ellis Island. So, you know, let me break the news for you. Ellis Island has been closed for many, many, many years now. Um, (laughs) And there is just no legal mechanism for people to come into this country if you are a low-wage, low-skilled worker, if you have your family here and you want to reunite with your family, it could take you 20 to 30 years to do that. That is the system that we have. And so the system has been designed to exactly do what it's doing, which is create a group of people that are exploitable for their labor. And we send these contradictory messages of saying, come, we want your cheap labor. And then we also want to deport you, right? And we want to deport your children. So, so that is a little bit of like how we have ended up here. And I think that to, to just, you know, um, also lift up how both parties have been complacent here. Um, the deportation machine that Trump has access to now and that is utilizing, unfortunately, really, really well, was designed in a bipartisan way. This is not just a Republican thing or, you know, just some Democrats. Both parties, particularly after 9-11, had a very strong commitment to build the systems and the agencies that will target immigrant communities of color in very, very concrete ways. And so you see, um, you know, after 9-11, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, Immigration and Customs Enforcement and Border Patrol become the largest enforcement agency in the entire country, where like your taxes my taxes, all of our taxes are supporting the largest law enforcement agency in the country that is deporting families um, and that it's separating families. Um, and it was supported by both parties in Congress, giving the agency and the Department of Homeland Security a tremendous amount of resources and setting up quarters of every day, about 40,000 beds need to be filled of immigrants are some of that those are detained. for-profit detention centers? It was going to get to my next point. Yeah. Many of these detention centers are connected and are owned by the same companies that are benefiting from the mass incarceration of people of color, of jails that are profiting from our 
from people in our own communities, right, being put in, in jails all, all across the country. So there are many connections here with the profiting of our communities uh, through the expansion of jails, through the expansion of detention centers. Um, and, you know, people sometimes forget that it was even Bill Clinton as president who actually passed one of the most uh, harmful set of reforms on immigration in 1996 um, that criminalized the community in deep, deep ways. So we have Trump. Trump has access to such a strong infrastructure on enforcement to to terrorize immigrant communities because both Republicans and Democrats have been complacent in creating this infrastructure. Um, and under Obama, um, you know, they, what I like to say and or to explain to people is that at least we had some room to fight him and to fight his administration and to push them for change. And through that, and through that work that we did uh, during that time, we were able to win the Deferred Action for Child Arrivals program, which, you know, protects people like my own brother from deportation, unfortunately terminated by the Trump administration on September 5th. We were able to push them to uh, set priorities for who was getting, uh, you know, focuses of, of uh, ICE agents and who, who were not. And so we were able to push um, the administration. And it took a, a hard, hard, uh, you know, work to get them there. Like, I don't, you know, I definitely share with people, it wasn't easy to get the Obama administration to move on many of these changes. And it was only because of aggressive organizing and pressure that we were able to do it. But if you compare that to now, we have a complete out of control agency, right? Uh, ICE agents have said publicly that they have, fe they feel that under Trump, their morale now it's high because they, they are now unleashed to do so to do as they wish and we see video viral video of these interactions seemingly every week or every few days and this is what we experience every day in united we dream we have a hotline um where people can call in to get help when they are experiencing um cases of detention or deportation uh with their families or friends and every day we get hundreds of calls Every day we get hundreds of calls from across the country that saying, you know, eyes showed up at my door. Uh, my, you know, my brother or my sister have been given a call to the court. They're going to have to show up. I mean, all these kinds of things. People are being deported in less than 48 hours, which gives us less time to organize, to fight back some of these deportations. And, you know, unfortunately, no matter how... Um, hard we work on these cases the reality is that extremists who are in ideology white supremacists are no longer a faction that it's outside of politics they are now running the government and running agencies like the department of homeland security when Homeland Security suggested that it would hire, had a goal of hiring 10,000 ICE agents. John Kelly was running DHS at the time, right? He's now chief of staff to Correct. the president in the White House. It does seem to be 
moving closer to the center of... And you had Bannon, you know, that even though he may be out of the White House, uh, continues to influence, and, and Bannon has been very public about his white supremacist uh, ideology. You have Miller, who's a key advisor to the administration who led the efforts to terminate DACA. You have Jeff Sessions, who has been... Uh, who's known to be racist, I mean, <laughs> this is no secret, um, and, 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 and highly anti-immigrant, who is leading the Department of Justice. So, you know, that's, I think, something that as Americans and as people who are organizing communities, we have to grapple with the fact that this is not normal, and also, it is not the Obama years, and it's not like any other political time that many of us have lived in when you have white supremacists running the government. How do you see the path forward, and what is United We Dream focusing on with so much happening? I mean, is a path to citizenship for 11 million people even a remote possibility in this current climate, even if Trump left office tomorrow? Or in terms of policy, are you focusing on pieces of the fight, including DACA and a Clean Dream Act, temporary protected status? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the this community um, is at the center and uh, the front lines of the attacks of this administration. I know as, you know, many of us involved in organizing and the resistance, we've celebrated how much... Uh, how much work we've been able to do to protect healthcare. And I want to remind people that as much as we celebrate our victories, I also want people to join me in seeing that actually this administration has been the most victorious and, and effective at implementing their anti-immigrant agenda. And their agenda on immigration that was promised during the campaign trail, bit by bit, it's becoming a reality. And it's become a reality since day one of this administration. We've seen the number of detentions and deportations quadruple. Um, we've seen uh, an, an, an increase of border patrol uh, terrorizing our communities and being one of the main drivers of detentions and deportations that are happening right now. I mean, Rosa Maria, a 10 year, uh, 10 year old girl, uh, right, who has a disability was, uh, followed by border patrol to the hospital where she was having surgery to be arrested, to be detained and then to be deported. A 10 year old. Um, and so that, that is the reality for immigrant communities every day. And for us, that is why the urgency and the goal of our work right now is to protect and defend our communities from deportation. Because all of us, right, like the administration have made all undocumented people vulnerable to deportation. And so that means young people, it means our, you know, siblings, it means our parents. And so our focus is to defend our communities from deportation and protect our communities. And we can do that through multiple ways. And we have been doing it right through getting many of our cities and states enacting policy that will protect our communities from deportation, like 
not collaborating with, uh, not allowing the collaboration between ICE and local police. And we've been able to win that in places like Houston, in California, uh, in places like New York. Um, and there's a lot more work that we need to do to get our states and our cities to stand up and push back against this administration that is going after our communities. And we, when we look at the undocumented community, you also have some folks in the community that have already had some level of protection from deportation. That includes the DACA recipients, right? About 800,000 of them. And it also includes people with uh, TPS, as so temporary protection status. Um, that includes many immigrants from Central America, from Africa, from Caribbean countries, from Haiti, um, who are giving a, a, a protective status because they're fleeing from natural disasters or other crises in their countries. And now the administration has actually said that they will be terminating these programs, which is about close to 300,000 people. So what this administration is doing very clearly is really trying to make even those people that have some level of protection to make them uh, vulnerable again to be p back in the deportation pipeline. So from a strategy standpoint, we are looking at all the ways that we can chip that away, that we can get more and more people to be protected from that pipeline that is only leading to detention and to deportation. And so right now, one of those things is being able to win a Clean Dream Act by the end of the year, by December, and we know we're full steam on that campaign um, and asking people to join us in calling Congress to uh, pass a Clean Dream Act uh, by the end of the year. And, you know, many people say, like, what is clean? What does that mean? I mean, clean means that we need a Dream Act that does not include any provisions that will harm the rest of the immigrant community. Because you cannot use undocumented young people as your bargaining chips to get more increases in enforcement. It's like me saying, you know, would you take a policy deal that will protect you or your siblings from deportation and deport your parents? Right. right? Like, so that that's the kind of thing that some Republicans are raising, which is why we're being really clear that what we need is a DREAM Act that doesn't hurt the rest of the community. And the reality is that the majority of people are with us on this demand or in this call for action. You know, over 86% of Americans support a Clean DREAM Act. People want to get to see this done. And so by doing that, we will be able to protect uh, over 1 million uh, young people from deportation. Um, and also getting... Uh, legislation to protect people with TPS so that we don't have, you know, 300,000 more people that will be vulnerable back into the pipeline of, of deportation. So those are some of the immediate fights that we have. Um, but, you know, as I was sharing this in the Women's Convention, I, 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 I don't think policy is ever the definition of the vision and the change that we want to see in our communities. It is a vehicle and it's a tool to get there. But in no way, I think that the DREAM Act uh, as a legislation defines our vision, our full vision, and or that fully reflects what we really need. And we, you know, have a, a vibrant movement that what it's seeking is uh, dignity, freedom, and justice for immigrants and communities of color. And that's not going to happen in one legislative session. 
um, particularly in this environment. So, you know, it's a long-term fight, but um, what I what I can tell you is that as much as there is fear in the immigrant community, there is a lot of courage to continue this fight. A few weeks ago, you received the MacArthur Genius Award. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And it's an unprecedented recognition, I think, of the work for immigrant rights. Um, have things changed for you and for United We Dream since that news? You know, certainly it was unexpected, and I don't think I understood really cognitively what the, uh, you know, the significance of it until it happened. Um, you know, but I feel it was really an honor, and I feel really grateful because I do think that this is a recognition um, of my parents' sacrifices and, like them, right, many immigrant families that come to this country seeking a better life, just like my own parents. Um, and that is also a recognition of the courage of undocumented young people and undocumented families that I have worked with for the last uh, decade, you know, almost um, in fighting for our lives and fighting to to really make this country what it's really supposed to be about, right? I mean, there is, there are um, foundational dreams and values about this country of like freedom and justice. And, you know, very early on in high school, I realized that there were many contradictions on that. Um, but I but I do think that for me, it's a recognition of the work that we have been doing, and particularly in this time where immigrant um immigrant communities are being so targeted and attacked, it has allowed us to bring even more, uh, you know, visibility and awareness. I'm sure I'm not the first one to say that I think you're a true American hero. And I'm, you know, that award really is recognition of that. And um, congratulations again. What sustains you in this work, especially in such troubled times? What sustains me is love. And, um, and that is the love of my partner, Walter, who also like me grew up undocumented. And he's actually one of the co-founders of United We Dream. And we have been in this journey of organizing, <laughs> uh, the love of my parents who continue to be so supportive of the work that I do and engage in the fight with me in many ways. And, and the love of all of the immigrant youth, um, and families that we work with all the time, uh, and their courage and their commitment to each other. It's what sustains me. And how can people help and connect with United We Dream? And I guess I want to add to that question specifically, how can people who have the privilege of being a U.S. citizen but may not be fully aware of what that privilege enables them to do, how can they help? Mm-hmm. I will say two things. Number one, for people who uh, are not undocumented um, themselves, um, this is a moment in our country where we have to pick a side. I think that the time for uh, being on the sidelines or staying quiet because you feel like it's not appropriate to say something or because you're afraid is no longer an option. Because we're not living in a moment where, you know, we're just having, um, we're living a challenging time with immigration or with immigrants. I mean, you know, certain communities are being certainly more targeted than others. And there are communities that are more, more vulnerable than others, like immigrant and refugee communities and, and communities of color generally. But this 
the moment that we're in, it's really about a battle of values and the soul of this country. And who is an American and who gets to define that? And what America is about? Who are we as a country? So my invitation to people is that we have to engage in conversations with our friends, with our families. So when you hear a family member that says, oh, you know, we should deport those immigrants or immigrants are taking our jobs. Um, let's engage in those conversations and let's pick a side um, about where we stand with our values, right? Like, are you on the side of um, a government that is saying that we have to get rid of particular groups of people uh, and that we have to discriminate against particular groups of people uh, and a white supremacist agenda? Or uh, are we on the side of uh, values of freedom and dignity and justice? And I think that there's no longer... Um, time to be quiet or to be on the sidelines. So that's something that you could do in your own community and with your own family and friends. And then the second thing that I will say is that we have less than six weeks to be able to um, pass a Clean Dream Act by December of this year. And something very concrete that people can do to join us in ensuring that we can do this, because I see some signs that we can get this done. There's bipartisan support. The polls say it, right? The majority are with us. But we cannot win, I think, unless all of us engage in this fight. And so your members of Congress need to hear from you. And they need to hear from you that we need a Clean Dream Act by the end of the year to protect undocumented young people from deportation. The way to do that is that you can text um, Dream Act Now to A77877, Dream Act Now to A77877, and we'll plug you into our movement, and I hope to see you in the streets uh, when we're pushing to make this a reality. Great, and uh, unitedwedream.org, and you're on all the socials, I know, because I follow you on Twitter and Facebook. Yes, so you can check out our website, uh, unitedwedream.org. There's also a lot of resources, toolkits about how to, for example, work with undocumented young people in schools or your community uh, at another site that is called wearehertostay.org, wearehertostay.org. And you can also check us out on Facebook at uh, United We Dream and at Twitter at United We Dream. And you can check out my own Twitter at Chris Alex Jimenez. Christina, it's such a privilege to sit down with you. I know it's a busy time for you. Thank you for taking the time. And uh, congratulations once again. And most importantly, best wishes for the fight ahead. Thank you so much. That does it for this episode of The Resistors. Thanks for listening. And thanks so much to Christina, Joan Choi, Gregory Sandana, and the whole United We Dream team. You can connect with them at unitedwedream.org or weareheretostay.org. You can also listen to more episodes of The Resistors on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you know someone who should be a guest on a future episode, connect with us at theresistors.co.